Morning again, everybody. Ruth chapter 3. If you have a Bible, uh, you might want to open it along with us. And um, before I get into the text, I, I, I'm not going to do a lengthy uh, review, but there are some things I want to look at. Uh, first of all, as, as I've been looking at this book, and the word that's used in the text this morning is the word virtue. And Ruth, among other things, the book of Ruth, uh, certainly the person, uh, is a story of virtues. As I was looking at this, I found a, a just kind of a cool overlay. It's not uh, not trying to make this totally walk on all fours, but it fits. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, we read, And now abide faith, hope, and love, three virtues, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And in chapter one, we see faith being worked out. We see Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, after the death of her husband, her sons, at a low point in her faith, at a low point in her life. And yet she does recognize that Bethlehem is the place to be. Probably in a greater sense, we see Ruth coming to faith in chapter one. We see her forsaking the gods and, and the, the, the people of Moab and embracing the God of Israel and embracing the people of Israel, coming to faith, exercising faith. In, in chapter two, we see hope. Uh, these two widows showed up in Bethlehem and they showed up really penniless. Uh, we have to assume that they were pretty destitute and and that we see that by chance Ruth going out she sets right out because she knows they have to eat and she sets right out to go and find a field to glean in by chance we looked at providence uh, she comes to the field of Boaz we also see in chapter 2 verse 20 that Naomi's hope is restored she says, as she hears about the encounter that Ruth had had with Boaz and, and where he had loaded her up with grain and, and Ruth comes back home and, and she's relating this to, to Naomi in, in verse 20, she says, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. She's seeing the posterity of her family, the potential for that to continue in this man, Boaz. Finally, in chapter three, looking at these three things, faith, hope, and love, we see that Boaz demonstrates a great godly love for both of these widows. Also in the first two chapters, there are a couple of major themes. And the first is that there's a choice in chapter one by Ruth. Uh, she is choosing to change her destiny. Her husband has died and and she's deciding to separate from her people to and her gods to Naomi's people, as I mentioned. And the decision that she made, this choice that she made, it hadn't been made lightly. If you remember in verses 16 and 17, I'll, I'll read it quickly here. Uh, Naomi is urging Ruth to go back to her family, to her gods, to the people of Moab. And she does that several times. She presses Ruth and Orpah, her sister-in-law. And Ruth says, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. Stop telling me to go. <laughs> For wherever you go, I'll go. And wherever you lodge, I'll lodge. And your people will be my people, your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die. She's saying, this goes beyond you, Naomi. And there I will be buried. The Lord Yahweh, the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and I. I want to look and think for just a moment about what was motivating these decisions. And, And yes, absolutely, Ruth had a love for Naomi. There's no question about that. But this was, these were not emotionally driven decisions. Yes, as we look in the New Testament, we understand agape love, the love that God has for us and the love that he gives us for others. It's a sacrificial love, and that's absolutely at work here. And yet, Ruth has thought this out. She has weighed these things in her own heart. And because of her love for her mother-in-law, she's made these decisions, rational decisions, to go to separate from her people, to embrace a whole new way of living, a whole new life. We've talked about types in the book of Ruth. And really, there's a wonderful shadow here of what it is to step from that life of death into into life in Christ. And a beautiful shadow that we see in that, in this thing. The second thing we see here in chapter two is that Ruth is now living out that choice. We see that she's laboring in Boaz's field. She'd made the decision and things weren't automatically handed to her. (laughs) I'll tell you folks, difficult circumstances are very often involved in choosing the path that God has set before us. They just are. I was reading heartbreaking news, uh, uh, a militant Islamic group in Africa. I, I read just yesterday about another 20 people had been slaughtered and those people had decided to stand for Christ. Persecution. I read an article this morning that uh, someone making some points about uh, being on the verge of persecution in our land. And I, it would not be surprising. Difficult circumstances often accompany real faith. But that's where our faith is tested. That's where it's tried. That's where it's proven. And that's where we grow. I remember years ago, my brother, I I had an opening in my business for an operations manager. Uh, The guy that had been working for me was moving on. And uh, about that time, my brother, my oldest brother, nine years older than me, gave his life to Christ. (laughs) And and it was just a fascinating time. He lived in Southern California. My business was way up north, north of Sacramento. And um, the Lord started speaking to my heart, you need to hire your brother. And I'm thinking, ah, not a chance. No, 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 not now, not ever. He is about as different from me. I mean, the guy alphabetizes his spice rack and I'm lucky if the spices get into the cupboard. And, and you know, we were just so different. And I'm telling the Lord, no, I, no, I don't want to do that. Well, within a month of his conversion, his life completely shut down. First, his vehicle got repossessed. There was some kind of paperwork thing. No, he lost his job. That's right. And then his vehicle got repossessed. And then he lost his condominium. And so he's homeless. He has no transportation and he has no money. And, and the Lord's still weighing on my heart. I've got an opening. And yet he went through, it's like he gave his life to Christ and his life crashed. And yeah, I ended up hiring him and it was one of the the best decisions I ever made because I was leaning to my own understanding instead of acknowledging God's hand in it. 
but tough things. We see Boaz's kindness here, the grace that he's showing to her, uh, to both of these widows, but he allows Ruth to go ahead and do the work. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, my load is easy and my burden is light. Guess what he's indicating? There is a load and there is a burden. But when you look at this, and again, you see the shadow of life in Christ with Ruth out there working in Boaz's field. He said, he told his guys, he said, leave some sheaves on the ground. Just, just leave lots of extra for her to come by and pick up. There was a load for Ruth, but it was easy. There was a burden, but because of Boaz, it was made light. And that's the same for you and I, as long as we stay. Remember, Boaz encouraged Ruth. He exhorted her, stay in my field. I can't protect you if you go wandering out of my field or you go into some other field. I can't protect you from the violence that's out there. I can't protect you from the world. And yet what God is constantly, and part of pastoral work is just encouraging people, stay the course. I know it's tough. Stay in his field. There's some interesting wordplay in in chapter 2. Again, wrapping that up. In verse 21, Ruth is relating her conversations with Boaz to Naomi. And she says, Boaz said to me, you'll stay close by my young men. (laughs) Naomi's response in verse 22 is uh, that she says to Ruth, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women. (laughs) which is just fascinating. Well, hold on to that. We'll get back to that in a little bit as we see Ruth's interaction with Boaz further in chapter three. But chapter two closes with Naomi beginning to hope once more. Remember, she said, I went out full. I came back empty. She was at a real low point in her life. And yet now, identifying this guy Boaz as a close relative, as a goel, as a kinsman who has the ability to redeem her hope is coming back online. In chapter twenty or chapter two, verse twenty-three, uh, chapter two closes with Ruth stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So, as we begin chapter three, the first word in chapter three is the word "then." What does that mean? What it means is there's a span of time that goes by. Remember, Naomi and Ruth had arrived back in Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. We're told that we we can locate that in the text in chapter 2. Here, it's the end of the harvest. Uh, When when it says then, uh, it's indicating that time has passed by, weeks, perhaps months, because the barley would ripen first and there would be an overlap between the barley and the wheat. But then after they harvested the barley, they would harvest the wheat. So between these two crops, we can assume that again, a number of weeks, perhaps two or three months had gone by. Plenty of time for Ruth to kind of get to know the lay of the land, for she and Boaz to have plenty of interaction together, for Ruth to be known in the community. And we see that she becomes known in just this short amount of time in the community in the text that we look at this morning. So the interesting thing here is that Naomi would have had that amount of time, but during that time, she's thinking, she's watching, she's planning, because she knew that when the harvest ended, they would be without support once more. 
This was a temporary fix. They, as long as they were out, she was, as Ruth was out gleaning in the fields and coming back. Yeah, she was coming back with a surplus. Yeah, she was coming back with more than they needed. But it was a temporary fix. It was something that was not going to sustain them, probably not sustain them through the long winter ahead. So Naomi has an eye on the future. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? So, as I mentioned, Naomi's more hopeful as she sees Boaz concern for she and Ruth, but she's now taking action. No doubt planning out how Ruth should proceed according to the laws and the customs of Israel. And Ruth would need some help. She was, she was a newbie. <laughs> she was a foreign woman who had embraced the people, embraced the Lord, and yet she wouldn't know the nuances. She wouldn't know all of the things that would go into what's about to transpire. So Naomi is essentially coaching her at this point. And, uh, her confidence in Ruth's virtue as well as the upright character of Boaz led her to propose what could be regarded as a risky move. Uh, What if, I mean, we all fear rejection. What if Boaz rejected her? But it was a calculated risk. Uh, It was one that was based on observing the two of them, their interactions, seeing Ruth, seeing Boaz, seeing what's going on in their lives over these months. So essentially, Naomi embarks on a matchmaking expedition. She, but now <laughs> I wanted to say, don't try this at home because, uh, that's often not the way that we do it. Mostly not the way that we do it. But in that culture, arranged marriages were, they were the norm. They were not the exception. So when she says, shall I not seek security for you? Uh, she is looking out for Ruth's best interests and she's also beginning to lay out a plan through which Ruth could gain a husband and security. But in when we look at this word, in chapter 1, verse 9, the same word is there. Remember now, when Naomi is, is encouraging Ruth and Orpah before they split, before Ruth and Naomi came back to Bethlehem, she's encouraging them to go back to their land, to go back to Moab, that they would find rest. And that's the same word as the word security here in chapter 3. When she says go, she said in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 9, the Lord grant that you might find rest each in the house of your husband. Now, this is an interesting Hebrew word, it, it, the word security or rest. It's menoach, and, and it literally means a place of rest. So Naomi's seeing a way to obtain rest, both for Ruth and for herself. And that's the point here. Understand that to the Hebrew mind, got to look at a different culture, rest was a sacred term. It's not just kick back. There's a lot more to it. Uh, if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the writer there relating back to the rest that Israel had, relating that to the rest of the believer, that uh, what it means is it's, speak, it's sort of like when we speak of being saved. If I, if I talk about uh, being saved in, in that way, the Hebrews put the same weight on obtaining rest. It's, for these women, obtaining rest is far more than simply finding a way to make a comfortable living. Monach means ceasing to worry, ceasing to struggle, ceasing to doubt. 
ceasing to be in jeopardy by obtaining a permanent source of blessing. Naomi had encouraged the the women, her daughters-in-law, to go back and find that. But now she knows, and Ruth is being established in the community, and it's been months since they've gotten back to Bethlehem. And she's saying, now it's time for us to begin to look ahead, look to the future, because this temporary fix that we've been enjoying at the hand of Boaz is going to run out. If you look back, if you look more at the big picture here, finding rest has been the desire of Naomi's heart from the beginning of this book, of the story. There had been a famine in Bethlehem. She followed her husband outside her own land, seeking rest from the famine. As a result, she had suffered tremendous loss. As I was looking at this, I was reminded of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which is a a well-known passage, but one that we need to keep in mind and to take to heart. Uh, There, we're told, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, which is what Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and she had done when they left. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Yeah, and of course, this was written long after Naomi and all of the people in this story lived. And yet, that's just good advice. Often, we can look at a thing and think, well, that makes sense. Well, and look at a thing and think, well, that's what I need to do. But we need to be like the guy that, that James speaks of in the book of James. He says, you know, if you are thinking about going to such and such a city and engaging in business there and making a profit, if you don't say Lord willing, if the Lord is not part of it, you're being foolish. And it turned out to be a foolish expedition for Naomi and her family. She had questions. She had challenges in the famine. Yes, there were. There were things that were unanswered. There were things they were getting pressed in. Yet she and her husband's initiative then had inadvertently removed her from the rest and the security that God brings. Now she's taking initiative in a manner entirely consistent with God's will. Verse 2. Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative or our kinsman? In fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So <laughs> Naomi is saying to Ruth, here's the plan. Boaz is the goel. Sometimes that word is translated as kinsman redeemer. He is a near relative and he has the power, the authority to redeem. Now I want to look at the, the goel here for a couple of minutes and, and just, uh, there are several responsibilities that the goel, the kinsman redeemer had in the Old Testament. And I'll just move through these quickly, but uh, for us to have a rounded view of what was going on here and, and how family life worked in Israel and the shadows that those cast into the New Testament, into our day even, they're important. The first is in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 48. We see that the Goel was responsible to redeem or to buy a brother out of slavery. So it, what it says there, I'm not going to go into these texts, but it says, look, if, if the guy was broke and, and he uh, couldn't pay his bills and he sold himself into slavery to someone else, that the Goel had the power to redeem. He could purchase that person's life back. In Romans 7.14, we see that uh, the Apostle Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm fleshly, sold into bondage to sin. That's the bondage, that's the slavery that we are in prior to Christ, outside of Christ. In Ephesians 1, 
Paul writes, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So what is the purchased possession? You and I. What's the price? In Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul is there with the Ephesian elders. They're there at Miletus and they're, they're weeping together because Paul knows that when he leaves, he won't see them again. And he exhorts these guys. He says, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That was the price of our redemption. The second thing we see here about the Goel is the Goel Hadam. Uh, in Numbers chapter 35, verse 19, we see that he is the avenger of blood. This is an interesting one. He was responsible to bring about justice after the wrongful murder of a family member. He was the one that was appointed by the family to go out and to extract vengeance. And yet, not so for us. God doesn't use the church as instruments for judgment. Uh, not going to find any examples of that in the New Testament that I know of. And yet in that day, that's what it was. Actually, we're told in Romans chapter 12, he says, Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, he goes on to say, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. In doing so, you'll heap burning coals on their head. So that's what the, the prescription was in the Old Testament for somebody who had intentionally murdered another, that the Goel Hadam was the guy that took vengeance. Now, there's something else about this, about this Goel Hadam that I think is just fascinating. And it's what happened if there was somebody who was unintentionally murdered. Let's say you're swinging an axe and the head comes off and it kills the guy next to you. He's talking about the manslayer, manslaughter. He's talking about unintentional murder. And in Joshua chapter 20, God uses Joshua and he lays out plans for six cities of refuge. And what that was, was that if you were guilty of unintentionally murdering someone, if you could hightail it to a city of refuge, they had six of them, three on the west side of the Jordan River, three on the east side, and they were spaced out from north to south throughout Israel, that you needed to get to that city of refuge. And there, once you stepped into the city of refuge, you were safe from the avenger of blood, from the Goel Hadam. And what that looked like was that you had to stay there until the death of the high priest. That's what we're told uh, there in Joshua. Interesting. All of us, the, the Bible says all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so each of us, if we wanted to extract or to look for justice, I've told people many times, you don't want justice. You want grace. Hebrews 6, chapter 18 says that we who have taken refuge in Christ, that we have a strong encouragement to hold firmly to the hope set before us because he is our high priest and he did die on our behalves. And therefore, we're safe. We may not have unintentionally killed someone, but what he's talking about here is sin. Whether intentional or not, it's still sin. And that Jesus is our refuge. In chapter 2, verse 12, remember when Boaz was talking to Ruth, he said, the Lord repay your work. A full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come 
for refuge. So the third thing we see here about the Goel is that in Leviticus 25, the Goel was responsible to redeem family land that had been sold or forfeited. He had the ability to take hold of the family land. Now, in Israel, the land had been apportioned. It had been divided up by tribes, and then it got divided up by clans, by families. So, uh, and in it, the land, if it had been forfeited, for whatever reason, the Goel could buy it back. There was provision in the law of Moses for him to do that, and, and that was exactly his function as the, the one who handled the real estate matters for the family. In 1 John chapter 1, or chapter 5, uh, John writes, we know that we're of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that at the garden that the earth was forfeited, that it's fallen. And yet, when Jesus defeated Satan at the cross, he purchased the right. He redeemed, uh, purchased the right to redeem the title deed to the earth. Yes, the earth still falls and lies in the hands of the evil one. We know that. But we're told in Revelation chapter 5 that Jesus is found worthy to take the scroll, to take the deed. In the meantime, I kind of smile when I think about it this way. It's as though the earth is in escrow. The deal's done. We're waiting for the redemption of the earth. The fourth thing that we look at here, the final thing, and the one that applies to where we're at in Ruth, is out of Deuteronomy chapter 25, the law of the Leveret brother. It says that the Goel was responsible to carry on the family name by marrying the childless wife of the deceased relative. This is Ruth. This is what comes to bear. When Naomi is making mention of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, it's this function of the kinsman redeemer that she's talking about. And we'll look in another study. I'm not going to take the time today. We've got a lot of ground to cover. At Jesus, we'll look more comprehensively at how he is our Goel, that he is our kinsman redeemer. He is our big brother that's come to purchase us. And he has. So in all of these, the laws of the leveret and so on, we see the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, that he was responsible to safeguard the people the property, and the posterity of the family. There was a lot on his shoulders. So now Naomi knows that Boaz, is that, that he is this guy, and she also knows his schedule. She has researched this a bit. She knows that he's going to be at the threshing floor. This isn't a random plan. The questions that are lingering in her mind as harvest is getting wrapped up is how will these two widows get by during the long winter? And The other question would be, will Boaz's kindness continue after the harvest is over? And that would be weighing on her. So she doesn't wait to find out. She launches a plan to help Ruth cement her relationship with Boaz. Uh, Now, again, Ruth being a stranger to Israeli customs, she had to be told in detail how she was to make the customary appeal to her kinsmen for protection and leveret marriage. And that's what she does. So what's Naomi's goal in this? It's to ensure that this season of provision becomes a lifetime of support. Verse 3. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So 
what they did in those days in Israel was that there were warm days. This is throughout the end of summer, the beginning of fall, what we would call Indian summer, warm days. And that plus in the still of the day, uh, it wasn't easy to thresh out the wheat and to winnow the wheat because they would take, first they would beat the grain on the threshing floor. It was a hard floor, a hard pan. And then they would take a winnowing fork, toss it up in the air and let the wind blow the chaff, the straw away. And it worked out to where it was much easier and more efficient to do it at night because the breezes would come up at that part of Israel in the evening. So she gives practical advice to Ruth on how she can appeal to Boaz. She says, get cleaned up, put on some nice clothes, throw on some perfume, and go on down to the threshing floor. But don't interrupt him, she says. Wait until he's finished for the night. You will want his undivided attention. Verse 4, then it shall be that when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he'll tell you what you should do. So when Boaz went to lie down, he would have a shawl, he wore a cloak, a long robe, that he, when he would lie down, and he would lie down next to his, his, his grain, because it was common for thieves to come in at that during that time, this is the time of the judges. And he would cover himself. Actually, his long kind of overcoat would become his blanket. So he would cover himself up with that and go to sleep. In First Samuel chapter 23, uh, we see here, uh, they, they come to David, they report to David that the Philistines were robbing the threshing floors. Again, Boaz is protecting his crop. He's protecting his investment. The other thing is, it's dark. She tells, Naomi tells Ruth, uh, notice where he goes uh, and, and then wait for him to finish because it's dark. Figure out where he's sleeping before the lamps go out is essentially what she's saying. I was looking at this. I remembered one time I was a teenager. I flew up to Seattle to visit my sister and my brother-in-law. And while I was there, we went to South Center Mall, this big, there was, at that time, I don't know, it's still there, big gong theater up there. <laughs> and so we went in, it was an afternoon matinee, and, and the theater was almost empty. <laughs> and uh, we went in, sat down, my sister was next to me, my brother-in-law, her husband was next to her, and we're sitting in the theater watching the movie, and I went up to get some popcorn. Well, I came back down after I, I got the popcorn and stuff and I went and sat down next to my sister and sat there for, I don't know, probably four or five minutes and I mentioned the popcorn. I thought, well, I should offer her some. So I turned to my left to offer my sister some popcorn and it wasn't my sister <laughs> because in the dark, I got the wrong couple. And this woman was absolutely mortified that this teenage guy had come and sat down right next to her at an empty theater. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I, I, I'm so, and, and I look over and my sister and her husband are sitting about three rows up by themselves. So the point in that is, is Naomi's telling Ruth, make sure you get the right guy because a lot of times the threshing floors in those days were shared. All right, and so you might have a number of fields in the threshing floor there that they share the space. So you don't want to get the wrong guy. Wait until uh, he goes to sleep, but check out where he is before he does. So the other thing about that is, is that her instruction was really clear. She said, Ruth, you are to do whatever Boaz requests of you. 
And the reason is, is that she knows that Boaz knows the customs and the laws of the land, that he will understand where you're going with this, that you're making a proposal for marriage when it's that at that point. Verse five, and she said to her, all that you say to me, I'll do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, then and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now, when it says that Boaz's heart was cheerful, it, 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 this is rendered differently in different translations, but uh, uh, one is probably my favorite, the, the one that's most accurately re- re- represented by the original language, is that he was in good spirits. He was in a good place. It's not, it didn't mean that he went... And he ate and got drunk. I mean, you can read that and get, read the wrong interpretation and wrong impression of that. What it's saying is that he was content. It had been a long day. He'd worked hard. He ate, he drank, and he was cheerful. He was in a good place. And he laid down and went to sleep. Evidently, he goes off to sleep quickly because threshing grain, again, threshing the grain and winnowing the grain, that's not light work. It would be hard work. So as he drifts off to sleep, she slips in, she uncovers his feet and lays down at at his feet as her mother-in-law had instructed. Verse 8, now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and he turned himself and there a woman was lying at his feet. So you got to realize that he would be on alert anyway. I mean, he's not sleeping at his home. He's sleeping out here next to his crop. And we would call it, you know, he's sleeping with one eye open. Uh, and he's startled when um, when she comes and lies down. And he wakes up and finds that there's a woman there. I was looking at this. I, was, I am relatively, no, I'm not relatively, I'm pretty hard of hearing. I spent too many years doing billboards out on highways where the decibel levels were huge. And it just wrecked my hearing. But my wife, she, that girl's got some ears. And it, I don't know how many times there will be something in the night. And that plus she's a mom. And I, I think moms totally connect with the fact there's a little noise. It's like, what? Where? What? It, well, Boaz here, he's he's on alert anyway. And, and he wakes up probably because his feet were getting cold. And, and there's a woman lying there in the dark. He doesn't know who it is. I got to, I want to just take a moment. And talk about Boaz's character. As we mentioned, godly character. Really upstanding guy. Contrasted to that, depraved men love darkness. Because it hides their sinfulness. In John chapter 3, verse 19. John says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. The veil of darkness. For Boaz, here's a perfect opportunity. He's a single guy alone with a single woman in the dark. No one would have known. It was midnight. Everybody was sound asleep. But Boaz would have known. God would have known. And he was a man of of honor and integrity, even in the dark. I think about our culture, folks. It's a dangerous, dangerous place out there when it comes to things of this nature. What's probably more common than what we as Christians 
look at is, I love you, so let's satisfy our desire. That's not love. It's absolutely not love. What it should be is, I love you, therefore let's submit this love, this desire to God. I'll tell you, when my son fell in love with a, a girl that I had had my eye on in our church for years, like, I want her to marry him and all of that, they intentionally preserved themselves for marriage. And God has so blessed that. They took themselves out of the running with other people and they didn't date. They courted because they believed that God was indeed putting them together and he was. I was talking to my son the other day. He said, you know, dad, we're coming up on 19 years and I love her more now than the day that we got together. My point is, There's the world's version of love and sexuality, and there's God's. Boaz here is being an honorable man. Verse 9. And he said, who are you? So she answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Now, remember the the last time she said that, she said, "I'm I'm Ruth, your maidservant, but I'm not like your other maidservants. She doesn't say that here. She says, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. They had gotten to know one another. She says, take your maidservant under your wing." For you're a close relative. You're a redeemer. Boaz knows exactly what she's saying. She's saying, essentially, I'm available for marriage. And you're qualified. You're the one in her mind. So she's also, she's using language that's familiar to Boaz. He had commended her for seeking refuge in Yahweh. We looked at that in chapter 2, verse 12, a little bit ago. So how could he now refuse her, the refuge she sought from him, according to Yahweh's laws? He's clearly, in this story, an instrument of the providential hand of God. When we looked at providence a few weeks ago, we looked at the fact that here is Boaz being used to provide for these widows, to provide for these women. And now, in a greater sense, after he had prayed that God would bless them, that God would provide for them, he is the one who is the answer to the prayer that he had made before. I think it's wonderful. It's also intentional. As the Holy Spirit inspired this beautiful little book to be written, that these connections would be made. So here Ruth is seeking the same refuge in the Lord through Boaz in making her intentions for marriage known. Now, when it talks about under his wing, this is not something that's an isolated thing. Again, when Boaz recognizes Ruth and he recognizes her faith, that she is a faithful woman, he says, in whose wings, Jesus, or in, in Yahweh's wings, in God's, under his wings, that you've come for refuge, that you've come for protection, you've come for sustenance, you've come for provision. You're seeing that God is the one that you're seeking. And that happened later on in Israel's history. God, uh, speaking through Ezekiel in chapter 16, verse 8, uh, demonstrates his love for Jerusalem and for Israel. He says, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. What a beautiful passage. And yet it doesn't end well for Jerusalem in that context. Dropping down to verse 15, he says, but you trusted in your own beauty. You played the harlot because of your fame. 
and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. Sounds familiar. Sounds like our world today. In Luke chapter 13, going ahead, going forward to the New Testament, Jesus, uh, in the last few days of his life, is teaching in the temple. He's teaching uh, around Jerusalem, over on the Mount of Olives and in the temple courts. And one of the things he says is, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you weren't willing. Where are you this morning? Is your life hidden in Christ? Can you say that you are under his wing, under his divine protection, his divine provision? Or are you out there trying to get it worked out yourself, kind of like Naomi was before she came back to Bethlehem? Those are good questions. We're told to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the will of God. And that's really what needs to happen in each of our hearts. Verse 10. Then Boaz said uh, to, to Ruth, he says, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. Again, indicating he's an older guy. For you've shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you didn't go after young men, whether poor or rich. So he commends her for her loyalty, saying that her latter kindness, her personal devotion to him, uh, instead of going after the young men, was better than the first when she left her home and her family to be with Naomi. He's looking at this. He's saying, man, you you were a blessing then, and this is a real blessing now. I believe that he was looking out for her when he suggested in verse 21 of chapter two, when he said, follow after the younger men. He's saying, stay with your peers. Those are the ones that you want to hang with. You're you're husbandless and you're going to need provision. And, And he wasn't looking out for himself. I think he was looking out for her interests and for her well-being and for her good. That's why he says, you didn't go after the younger guys. Didn't matter if they're poor or rich. Because Naomi, now Naomi, again, she's got this mapped out. And as she's coaching Ruth here, she has different ideas because she understands the customs and the laws of the land. And that's why she's telling Ruth to follow the young women there in, in verse 22 of chapter two and why she had told Ruth to go and to present herself to Boaz in this manner. Because she knows that that's the best shot that they've got. And God's in it. He's guiding, directing. Verse 11, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. This is Boaz speaking to Ruth. For all the people of my town know that you're a virtuous woman. So in verse 10, he states that he observed that she wasn't out for the young men's money. He's saying, you know, that's showing me something about your character, Ruth. And here in verse 11, he commends her character as a virtuous woman. He's saying, look, Your reputation precedes you, Ruth. Now, Boaz knows at this point, we talked earlier about, you know, I don't think that there was a romantic thing going on earlier in this story. But now, Boaz, in this situation where she's uncovered his feet, she has very plainly told him what her intentions are, that she sees him as someone to marry. And he's acknowledging, in our terminology, we say, he knows that she's a catch. And she was. And he says, I will do for you. When he says, I will do for you, Boaz asserts 
his readiness to marry her, though just a moment later, he suggests that there's a practical obstacle in the way. And we see that in verse 12. It says that now it was true that, well, now it is true that I'm a close relative. I'm a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a relative closer than I. So what he's saying in this is that when he says there's somebody that's closer than I am, he's saying this man's claim must come first. Now, Ruth, I, we don't know how much she knew, but she may not have. I don't think that she knew this because I don't even think Naomi knew it. I mean, she sends Ruth out to Boaz. So this might have left her spinning a little bit. It might have left her scratching her head. Uh, she's not familiar with the customs of the land. She's not familiar with how things work. And so that's part of why Naomi had said, do whatever he tells you. I remember when Stacy and I were ministering in Asia, we were in uh, northern Thailand and southern Burma. And uh, when we first got there, the first time we went, when we first got there, we were kind of going through uh, with Charlie and Brenda, the, the people that were running the ministry, and they were giving us the to-dos and not-to-dos of that culture. And one of them is because you don't ever wear anything but flip-flops. I mean, that is the standard footwear. That's it. We didn't even bring shoes. They said, don't bring shoes. You'll never wear them. And we didn't. So, but they said, when you're sitting, Americans are not conscious of the bottom of their feet. And, I, and he's telling me that I'm thinking, bottom of your feet? He said, yeah, if you show somebody the bottom of your feet, it's like showing them your nakedness. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't want to do that. And so it's like my feet are planted on the ground the whole time. And every now and then I'd catch myself sitting there, you know, with my foot up across my knee. And it's like, oh, gotta get, get. <laughs> it, was, it kind of freaked me out. Well, same kind of thing going on here. Ruth doesn't know their customs. She doesn't know the nuances of what's going on. And so she's like, what do you mean there's somebody better? or somebody closer. And and she's just, again, that's part of why she's been instructed. Just go with what Boaz is saying. Verse 13, stay this night and in the morning, it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he doesn't want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So, Boaz here, he continues to act honorably. He's a godly man, a great example. And he, he, he's doing, he's acting honorably in a couple of ways here. The first is he doesn't send her home. It's the middle of the night. Remember it says he woke up at midnight. And there were dangers out there. There's perils out there. The other thing though is he says, spend the night. And we see that in verse 14. We're not going to get there today. He says, spend the night at my feet. He's an honorable man. He's not going to take advantage of her. He doesn't want to touch her unless she could be rightfully his. The second thing that he's doing here that's very honorable is he's already protecting protecting the rights of the nearer kinsmen. He's saying, look, this is how it is. This is how it's set out. We're not going to deviate from this. If he will take you, then fine, let him take you. If he won't, no problem, essentially, I will fulfill that duty. So uh, Boaz is, again, and then he he ends it. He covers his pledge with a promise. That's what he's doing. He says, look, either way, don't worry about it. Either way, you're going to be redeemed. Either way, you're going to have a husband. That would be great relief 
for this woman who, I mean, looking back at her recent history, she's, she watched her husband die in Moab. She watched her father-in-law die in Moab if, she was, if he was on the scene when she was with her husband. She watched her husband's brother die. She watched her mother-in-law just get broken. And now they've come back and they're trying to figure out what do we do with our lives? And this man has just spoken words of comfort to her that would just be amazing to hear. She gets to go home to tell her mother-in-law, either way it's handled, either way we're covered, either way we're going to find the rest that we've been looking for. There's no doubt about how Boaz wants this matter to be resolved. (laughs) I think it's pretty clear. Um, He demonstrates his devotion to Ruth by uh, asking her to stay the night at his feet. But he's also committed to doing it God's way and trusting God for the outcome. We get faced with stuff like that all the time. I remember one time, I have a, a brother, he's gone to heaven a couple of years ago, but uh, that had a, a brain injury and he was pretty severely disabled. And and uh, the person that was caretaking him uh, came to us that, that they had hit him very hard in the head. And so my family had to go and get their guardianship revoked and all of that. And it was just a horrible time because he was, he, he was so dependent and they were being very abusive. And so my family and I showed up uh, at my brother's house <laughs> and my brother wasn't a believer, uh, but that, yes, that, that's all right. And they kind of appointed me as the family spokesman. And I had a little briefcase with all the stuff, all the paperwork and all. But I said, guys, before we head off to the courthouse, I want to pray. And, and said, come on, let's all go in the living room. So we went in, we prayed. And my prayer was something along the lines of, Lord, if they are not willing to relent and to relinquish, relinquish his guardianship, then I pray you would confound their minds. And we didn't want to go to court, but it was the only answer to being able to get our brother taken care of. And I finished praying and I told my family, I said, look, There's God's way and there's our way. We're not going to go in there. We're not going to lie. We're not going to misrepresent the facts. We're not going to go in there and embellish. We're going to simply share the truth. And here's why. I am absolutely convinced if we do it God's way, we can know God's will. And we went in. They said about two words. His guardian said about two words. And the judge said something to them. And they started bawling out the judge and we never, I never got a chance to open my briefcase. I mean, it was just a done deal because we had submitted it to the Lord. That's what Boaz is doing here. He's using, he, I mean, he could have said, yeah, I know there's a guy that's closer and, you know, we'll deal with that later. Yeah, sure, Ruth, let's, let's do this thing. But he doesn't do that. He's committed to doing it God's way. What's the point in all of this? up to this point in chapter three, the book of Ruth. The point is this. There is no substitute, none, for godly character. I'll say it again. There is no substitute for godly character. There are times where we get hit with decisions and sometimes they're hard, folks. Sometimes they're difficult. Sometimes we have to give things up that we really don't want to give up. Sometimes we have to go somewhere we don't want to go. Sometimes we have to be with someone we don't want to be with. 
But I'm telling you, godly character says the right thing to do is always the right thing to do. Regardless of what it looks like, regardless of how comfortable I am, regardless of what it's going to cost. We see that working in this story and it's beautiful. And there are so many lessons in it for us. For Naomi, these were hard earned lessons. She'd gone through a lot and now she's experiencing what it is to be restored. She's experiencing renewed hope. She's seeing grace. She's seeing the difference between doing things, leaning to her own understanding and doing things in a way that acknowledges God and his plan in the midst of it. For Ruth, we see a woman who outwardly might have been prejudged. She's a Moabitess. She's a foreigner. They didn't like Moabites. They didn't like foreigners. And when I say prejudged, that's the, the basis of our word prejudice, prejudged, prejudiced. And people would have been prejudiced automatically against her as a foreigner and as a Moabite. But in just the time of the harvest, as they got there at the beginning of barley harvest, and Boaz is talking to her at the end of wheat harvest. So just in that few months or, or number of weeks time, her reputation had gone out to the whole community as a godly woman, as a virtuous woman. I want that kind of reputation. I pray you do too. It didn't come easily for her. There was great sacrifice. She walked away from her family knowing she would probably never see them again. She embraced life with a woman in a foreign land where she would be at the lowest end of the social scale. She goes out and she's working every day and Boaz is letting her do the work. There's just a great illustration there where the Lord allows us to do the work. He lets us participate in his work and then he blesses us for it. That's what's happening with her. She's a virtuous woman and her virtue shines in this story. For Boaz, a type for Jesus Christ, the love, the grace, the unmerited favor, the commitment he has for these two widows, we got to know because every time he opens his mouth, Yahweh comes out. We got to know that it's a byproduct. It it is an expression of his relationship with the Lord. What does your relationship with the Lord look like this morning? Where are you at with Jesus? If you don't have one, if you're perhaps watching this online or on our podcast or whatever, you can take care of that with a simple prayer. The thing is, you have to mean it. And it would be something like, God, I I know I've lived my life away from you. I know I have lived a life of sinfulness, a life of of rebellion. And you're touching my heart. I'm seeing these things perhaps for the first time, or I'm seeing these things in a new, fresh way. I want you to be Lord in my life. I want you to forgive me for my sins. I want you to, uh, to wash me and then come and dwell within me because it's the only way I'm going to make sense in my life. I've been leaning to my own understanding. But now I want to acknowledge you. If you're praying something like that, tell somebody. Jesus called people publicly. With us being closed at the present, it's hard to do that here. But if you know somebody who knows Jesus, somebody who loves the Lord, tell them about that decision. Let it be real. Let him be real to you today. It's not something that's made up. 
This is how God gets a hold of people's lives. Let him do the work. If you perhaps have been wondering, one of my great concerns as a pastor is that during this whole pandemic thing, regardless of your opinions and your views, because they're all over the place. I mean, some of us have opinions that we need to be open regardless of any risk. Da, 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 da. Some of us say we should never open until it's, and, and you know, and, and we're just finding our way. But in that, my prayer is that our church would not fragment. Our prayer is that our church would continue to grow through difficult circumstances. My prayer is that, uh, my prayer is that we can open the doors as quickly as possible. And, and we're looking at some metrics that are involved with that. Our elders got together the other night. And, and so in that, I pray that we could grow. I pray that we would grow together as a body. I pray that we would grow individually in our individual relationship with the Lord. Allow these circumstances, they're tough. Allow them to shape your thinking. Allow God to speak to you through them. I guarantee you that's what he wants to do. He needs a heart that's yielded. He needs somebody that has spiritual ears, ears to hear, spiritual eyes, eyes to see, and a heart that really wants to understand. So with that, folks, we're going to wrap up for today. We'll pick up uh, in verse 14 of chapter 3 next week, go on into chapter 4, and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for, there's just so much to mine from this book so many lessons, so many things that, that we can, that you turn our attention towards. And so I pray, Father, for each one that you would speak to us. I pray as you've been speaking to us this morning, that your word would just go deep into our hearts. And that as we come away from this study, that that word would remain, that those seeds would not be stolen, that they would go down, that they would produce fruit. So we commit ourselves afresh towards that end. We pray, Father, that you would work in us, work through us as we deal with others and that your will would be accomplished in us. Lord, we want our lives to shine for you. We want this to be for your glory and for your glory alone. We thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.